Amen. How awesome was that? Six baptisms today. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, some of you knew this, but I had the privilege of baptizing our daughter, Jubilee, for the first service. And so it's, ba- it's Pastor Baptize Your Daughter Day, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I love baptism. I still, my, my shirt is still wet with baptism water. I'd like to have many more Sundays like that. Amen? So, you know, it's evidence that it's God's grace and not anything we're doing, but God's presence among us. I'm just really grateful. Let me ask you a trivia question. You may have heard the phrase, the Midas touch. Any idea where that came from? Or a closely related phrase, everything that person touches turns to gold. Somebody asks you, where did that come from? You can now say with confidence, well, that comes from an ancient Greek myth. And that would be the answer, the myth of King Midas. It's told in a a couple of different formats, but the general story is King Midas lived in a big castle with his beautiful daughter, and he was rich. He had lots of gold, and he loved gold. He would get in his bathtub and cover himself with his gold coins. Uh, Dionysus, the the god of wine, god of celebration, came through on a visit, with a friend, and King Midas put him up, gave him lodging, and Dionysus said, hey, I'd love to grant you any wish that you want. Wish away, and I bet you can guess what King Midas wished for. He wished that everything he touched would turn to? There you go. And Dionysus says, done. And at first, it was really cool. Uh, King Midas was like, touch a chair, gold. Touch a table, gold. Touch the wall, gold. The carpet, gold. And then he sits down in his golden chair at his golden table, and he sees a fresh bouquet of flowers. He's like, ah, spring, I want to smell those. And he grabbed them, they turned to, and he's like, and then he grabbed his drink, and it turned to, and he grabbed his food, and it turned to, and then he's like, "Uh uh-oh, be careful what you wish for. That's the myth. Sometimes those things that seem so good, like I wish that everything I touched turned to gold, could actually be the worst possible thing we could hope for. Sometimes there's things that we think are going to give us the good life and provide life for us are the very things that steal life from us. We're going to look at a parable of Jesus that is like this myth. It's interesting to think that Jesus absolutely knew the myth of King Midas in his time. It predated him. And perhaps he wove it a little bit into uh, this parable that we're going to study this morning. We've been in Luke's Gospel for a couple of weeks. We're calling it the Great Reversal because Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus focuses on this thread that carries through so many of the stories of Jesus and his coming kingdom turning everything inside out and upside down, including me and including you, if you will lean in, if we will participate. We can't collide with Jesus and stay the same. That's a warning and an invitation. We took a, a turn last week in a new direction that we enter the season of Lent as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter. That's a, that's a 40-day period. And so we, we turned also in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke, for the next 10 chapters, takes us on a road trip. And this is the road trip the week before Jesus' death. Jesus is up in the northern part of the country, Galilee, which is kind of the base of operations, takes his young teenage disciples and says, we're going to Jerusalem, which was not new. That's where all the festivals were, and it was a common journey. But unlike most Jews, Jesus didn't do the end around Samaria. Jesus went right through Samaria. And as he's road tripping with his young teenage disciples, who in short order, he will hand the keys to the kingdom. And these guys were not ready. And he's like, I got one last week to prepare them for what the kingdom of God is. 
And he didn't come with direct teaching, point one, point two, point three, are you taking notes, disciples? He told them stories. Stories called parables. And we define parables as short stories that uh, fire our imagination and, and fire it in such a way that we can see a different reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. We are not necessarily immersed in the kingdom of God, even though it's coming. It is coming, and we're meant to bring it. We're meant to participate in it. But so much of our world is the kingdom of the world. And he wanted to awaken their imaginations, to allow them to see with new lenses the finer details of the kingdom. And he knew he could only accomplish that through these quirky little stories we call parables. And we're going to look at our second parable today all the way up through Easter. We're going to look at a parable each Sunday as we road trip with Jesus and the disciples all the way to the cross. Before Denise comes up and reads our scripture, uh, let me pray for us. And remember, as she comes up, if you're new here, she'll say, this is the word of the Lord after she's done. And you will say, but you'll say it with gusto, way, way more powerfully than that. All right. Jesus, thank you for uh, new life. Thank you for uh, the proclamation that you are king of kings and you are Lord of lords. You are a hope. You are a life. Uh, thank you for the gift of those, those stories. Uh, so much more complex. There's so much more there than just a short story that's read. We know that. But, um, man, we're grateful for hearing just those pieces and look forward to getting to know those folks as they uh, participate more deeply in our community. Uh, God, I just pray whatever baggage we might be bringing in this morning, I know I bring baggage in, everybody does, uh, we just let it go. We just put it down beside us. Uh, you're a no-baggage God. You give us a seat at the table by grace, and I just pray that we'd pull up a seat at the table this morning, and whatever is coming this week that may be pressing on our hearts, stressful things coming, we pray that we could just release them to you right now and be present with you and be present with one another. Holy Spirit, move within us, and as Denise reads your word, may it come alive in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Our reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. In parable, it was launched by a question. So picture Jesus. It's, let's enter these stories with our mind's eye. Jesus is walking through Samaria. He's teaching as he goes. He's jovial. He's smiling. I think he always was. 
and he's preparing their hearts with these stories. Last week, a lawyer came up, a teacher of the law, and asked him this question, and Jesus entered this dialogue, and Jesus answers with a story. It's similar this week. It's not a lawyer, but uh, we don't know who it is. Luke doesn't tell us. Someone is in the crowd and comes up, and they're recognizing Jesus' role as a rabbi. Jesus had authority. He knew the law well, and they wanted Jesus to rule on a matter of inheritance law. And we, let's not spend too much time here. It wasn't that complicated. Inheritance law was pretty straightforward. In their day and age, the father, when he passed, would pass on his inheritance to the sons. All of the sons, if there were multiple sons, but the eldest son would kind of be in charge. The hope was that the inheritance would stay together. The sons would get along, they'd share, because most of the time the inheritance was not like cash and stocks and portfolios like today, it was land. And it's hard to divide land. This land had been in families for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. So the rabbis and the teachers were all like, do whatever you can to get along and to keep the inheritance together. But sometimes the brothers would fight. Sometimes divisions would come and sometimes the inheritance sadly would be broken up and not passed on to the next generation. That's what's going on here. We don't know the dispute. We don't know why they were fighting. But the younger brother, we presume it's the younger brother, is coming to Jesus and saying, look, Jesus, as a teacher of the law, this is what's going on in my life. Can you agree with my, my plan that my brother should, should split the inheritance? It sounds like my prayer life. God, will you agree with my plan? That's kind of how I pray sometimes. And, and so that's kind of the scenario. And I like to think the older brother's right there, too. Like, I think, uh, let's, let's bring some tension to the story. I think that they're there. They're, they're bickering, as brothers sometimes do. But it's dire. It's more than just a spat. Because this is a split that will last forever. It will break generational bonds. That's what's happening. So he's like, Jesus, can you agree with my story? Jesus, is in, if you look down and if you have Luke open and if you can get it on your phone, get it, because we'll be bouncing around a little bit. Luke 12, Jesus is pretty much like, man, don't put me in the middle of this. Literally, it says man in the Greek. That's the Greek. And it can be harsh. It can be gentle. I think it's a little harsh here. I think he's frustrated. Like, really? Like, come on now. Like, I don't want to get all involved in your family disputes. Don't try to do that. I see what you're doing. And Jesus could have given a really simple legal ruling because the ruling was simple. The rabbi said, if any brother wanted to split inheritance, it should be done. So it was a pretty simple case. Jesus could have just ruled, but here's what he's doing. Jesus doesn't really care much about this legal ruling. Jesus wants to change the man's heart. And, that, and he's going to give this parable not to kind of nitpick around the edges of our faith, but to change the very core of our hearts if we will allow it. So the way that Jesus does this, a little bit different than last week, he gives a wisdom statement to begin, then he gives our story, and then he gives another wisdom statement. So that's kind of how we'll proceed in, in the answer. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hokmah. It means skillful living. Uh, and the scriptures are filled with wisdom statements, collected generationally. I like to picture like generation upon generation upon generation of the smartest people you've ever met in a room. And you get to ask them for advice. And they come back with one line. Should you do that? Yes, you should do what they say, <laughs> definitely. That's kind of the wisdom statements in Scripture. So we got a wisdom statement, a story, and then a wisdom statement. All right, you guys following along? You ready? Let's get into the first wisdom statement here. The first wisdom statement, Jesus gives a warning. Jesus says that, uh, that watch out and be on guard. In your text, they're back to back. So it's kind of a double. When Scripture repeats something, pay attention. Watch out, be on guard. Watch out, be on guard. Like, we better prepare something. Jesus is concerned about something. What's he concerned about? He's concerned about greed. He said, watch out for greed. Be on guard against greed because greed will wreck your heart and wreck your life. 
The Greek word uh, for greed just means to desire to have more. Uh, the English definition is very close to that, to desire to have more of something uh, that is needed. So it's closely related, and some of your, your texts may translate it, do not covet, uh, which is the last of the Ten Commandments. This is a huge theme in Scripture. This whole thing in our hearts that's born out of sin that we need more and more and more and more. Scripture's like, don't do that. That will wreck your life, even though it feels so natural to all of your human hearts. Sometimes we don't need definitions. We need pictures. This is what greed looks like, this guy, right? I mean, I like it, but that's greed. It's like, ah, oh, more cookies, you know. That's what greed is when it's running, you know, crazy in our hearts. That's what it looks like, the cookie monster. Jesus says, then he goes on. He goes, watch out, guard against greed. And then he says, life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So this word life here is not your physical life. And that's how we most often hear it and use it. So we got to be careful. It's the quality of our life. So we often say that this person outlived us. What we mean is they're still alive and we're not. Or they're still alive, they outlived that person. We're meaning physical life. But we could say that person outlived us, meaning the quality of how they live. Maybe they're dead, but they outlived us. So that's the idea here. It's the quality of life. And Jesus is like, be very careful here. This is what greed does to you. Greed tells us that the quality of life is measured in the abundance of what we have. Watch out. Be on guard. And this would have been a peculiar statement. Maybe it isn't to you. I will argue later that it is. But maybe it isn't on first hearing to you and to your ears. It would have been to them. I could deep dive on this. I won't. But the Roman, first century Greco-Roman world was absolutely a caste system that was bent on honor and status. Everything was about status. We go back and we find tombstones. I'm not kidding. There's paragraph after paragraph on the tombstones about what they did in life and their titles. It was ridiculous. That's how they, they valued things. And status and honor was directly connected to money. There were different levels all the way up. There was an uh, elite level with different things and a non-elite level. All the way up, you had to have a certain amount of money you were making each year. If you drop below that, you got dropped. So it's so ubiquitous to their thinking. They just, yeah, of course, life is all about what I possess. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. <laughs> Jesus is like, watch out. That's greed. Be on guard. Now, to this point, because we don't do well as humans with direct communication, people just telling us to watch out and not be greedy. We're like, I'm not greedy, or we don't listen, or we want to argue. We talked about that last week. But stories sneak up on us. Stories come in the back door of our hearts and catch us by surprise. So Jesus gives them the direct communication, then he gives them a story. The story is very simple. You just heard Denise read it. It has five stanzas, and it goes something like this. The first stanza, we're told the ground of a rich man yielded an abundant harvest. This is a great illustration for them, maybe not for us. We're not an agrarian culture anymore. There may be some farmers in here or you garden so you know a little bit of it. They were totally an agrarian culture. Their money was their crops, basically. So they understood this. Jesus is basically saying there's a farmer who's a very hardworking, successful farmer that had a lot of land, had a lot of crops, had a lot of barns, and then he hit gold. He got even more. The harvest came in. So he's, he's got a ton of stuff. So stanza two presents the problem of that. The problem is he has nowhere to put the stuff. Because you can, we know basic farming. If you have the harvest, but you don't house it in a place that can keep dry and shelter and all that, it'll rot. And so he didn't have enough space to house all of his stuff. That was the problem. 
So Stads of Three brings in uh, the, the solution this man has. Interesting, he says, Jesus tells us the man is debating with himself. That line may not jump out to us, but it would have to the first century audience. Because rich people would sit at the city gates and debate. That's how they spent their time. This man has no one to debate with. This is a lonely man with no friends. He's debating with himself. He's trying to solve his problem. I've got so much. It just keeps coming. I don't know what to do with it. So his solution is stanza four. He says, I'll tear down my small barns, which probably weren't that small, and I'll build bigger ones up and to the right. That's my solution. And he's pleased with himself. And then Jesus gives us his internal processing. He says, I will say to my soul, that's the Greek word, which just means your holistic being, soul, you have a surplus for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Again, he's talking to himself. He has no friends. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. If you've ever read that, it's, it's a fiction book, but it describes how Lewis saw hell. And his version of hell were people spaced out by thousands of miles in large houses, utterly alone, mumbling to themselves for all of eternity. It's horrible. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my. He, he thinks he's alive, this man. It's a living hell. But he's figured it out. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then God interjects. Then we hear the voice of God come into the story. And God calls this man a fool. Now, there's four different Greek words in the New Testament used for fool, and, and they're kind of different, uh, d- different levels of foolishness, if you will. This is the heightened level. This is really foolish. You could translate it stupid. God's calling the man stupid. Why is he stupid? He says, you're stupid because tonight your life will be required of you. And hear this, have ears to hear. This is what Jesus said with his parables. Do you have ears to hear? We never know when our life's gonna be required of us, but it will be required of all of us. You're not gonna live forever. Newsflash, right? And I don't know how it looks. I really don't. Uh, I think it's much more gracious than probably I imagine it. But all of us will stand before God one day and give an account of how we spent our lives. We will. I don't know what that looks like. But that's the phrase. He's like, tonight, (laughs) I'm calling in those accounts. Tonight, you're reporting in. And guess what? You can't take the barns with you. If you stand before him and you say, well, you know, how did you spend your life, farmer? And he's like, well, I didn't have any friends and I had a lot of stuff that I hoarded for myself. How's that gonna go? God tells us how it's gonna go. God tells us that it's stupid. I thought of uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Are you familiar with that? I think it's, it's a very well-known tale. And there, there's lots of different versions of it. I like the Muppet Christmas Carol. Anybody else? I love it. So great. It's on our short list for holiday movies. Anyway, the story is wonderful, and I have to think Dickens was inspired by this parable. But in the, in the, in the story, Ebenezer Scrooge is a Scrooge. He's a miser. He has no friends, but he's wealthy. He, he has so much he doesn't know what to do with. But then on Christmas Eve, the three ghosts come. Christmas, ghost to Christmas past, ghost to Christmas present, ghost to Christmas future. And he's able to see what his life has become, which is no life at all. The beauty of that story is he's able to come out and he becomes a man of great generosity and great joy as he learns to just give it away. The sad part of this parable is the man gets no shot at that. Jesus ends the story by giving us, he's bookending it, remember, with wisdom principles. He gives us another wisdom principle. He says, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. 
Jesus is contrasting two ways of how we define the good life. The one way would have been very familiar to the first century Greco-Roman world. I'm going to argue that it's very familiar to us. The good life of, it's the good life if we are just successful and we accumulate more and more and more and more. That's one version of the good life. Jesus is coming in. Remember, great reversal, flipping everything inside out and upside down. He's like, no, that's not the good life at all. The good life is being rich towards God. And we'll talk about what that means. This, this uh, critique of this good life, you know, that life consists in our abundance of possessions is everywhere throughout the scriptures. This isn't a one and done. Here's one example from the Psalms. It says, do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beast that perish. Jesus is, is, is bringing in, the hope is he's bringing in a new way of seeing the good life. We don't have to be locked in this old way that lives that lands again and again and again in a state of death. We think it's life, it ends to death. We think we have the Midas touch that we want everything that turns to gold, be careful what you wish for. It doesn't end there. So the hope is that Jesus is waking us up, smelling salts with this story. And hopefully, if we have ears to hear, we're like, what is the good life? I've been seduced into thinking wrongly. I want to know what the good life is. So uh, I talked last week about parables. We're, if, you, if you're a church person, and I think just post-enlightenment, our brains work this way. I know mine does. We come to the text of Scripture, and we want to study it. And we think, we, we like Paul's letters, because he makes point one that leads to point two, and he's trying to make an argument, and we like that. We struggle with parables, because we try to bring the same mindset to them, and it doesn't work. And uh, I argued for a different hermeneutic last week with parables, and, and I think this is the hermeneutic I'd suggest to you, is I hope you continue to enter into these stories throughout the week. To get what a parable means, you have to enter into it yourself. You have to participate, if you will. Be careful. Fair warning, because your life will change. And you also have to allow it to enter you. And then where you land with it is between you and the Lord. I think we could have a lot of different ways this lands this morning. So as I, as I kind of talk about each week this portion of the message, I talk about where this lands for me and maybe it resonates for you. When I read this, prayed over, pondered it, I kept on having this thought come to my mind. The good life is not what we think it is. The good life is not what we think it is. The description of the farmer in this story is essentially a version of the American dream. Whoa, 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 John. And now, let me just say a couple caveats because I don't want to get eight million angry emails. I love America. I love freedom. I love democracy. Capitalism's fine. You know, working hard is good. Being successful is fine. Are you hearing me? I don't want to miscommunicate. All right, so I'm not going to respond to any of those emails when you send them. I'm like, go listen to the message. I covered all that. All that's fine. I'm not, here's what I'm saying. When we, it's, and I said a version of the American dream. When we cobble all that together as a narrative and we say that is the good life, that's what Jesus is saying, frankly, is stupid. That's what I'm saying. And that's, that's where this, this parable gets inside of us if we allow it. The people listening in the first century, we have to get this. They would not have seen anything wrong with the farmer. And if you think about it, you probably don't either. He was just a hardworking dude that, that was good at farming. And he had lots of barns. 
and he was trying to make sure his crops, crops didn't rot. Uh, he was investing wisely, this and this and this. Like, no one would have blinked at Jesus' story. And maybe we don't. I don't know what the modern version would be. Like, it would be, you know, we're told early on in our lives uh, that, you know, we should accumulate more and more stuff, that we should buy a house young, as young as we can, and then we got to get that second house, right? And then we use the equity to buy the third house. And then if we have enough, then we buy, like, you know, a vacation home. And then we, you know, we, we buy one car and then another car because our teenager needs to drive. And then we buy a sports car because we're having a midlife crisis. And then, you know, we're, we got to build a bigger garage because of all of our cars that we don't have enough people to drive. And then we work really hard so we can retire early so we can go play golf. I have no idea why. And then we buy an RV to travel the country. Now, again, let me give some caveats. I don't get angry golfer emails. Like, I have nothing wrong with golf or RVs. We have a little pop-up trailer. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. The very definition of idolatry is when good things become the ultimate things. And we look at that and we buy it and it's so subtle, so subtle, that we think we deserve it. We think we're entitled to it, like the younger brother thought he was entitled. Give me what's mine. And Jesus is like, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because it will wreck your life. And Jesus gives us a different way. Jesus gives us this incredible vision of a different way of living. Malcolm Forbes, this is a way I would sum up this version of the American Dreams. He was a, he's Forbes magazine guy. He's a rich guy. He said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, America is the richest country on the face of the earth, the richest country in history, and it's not even close. They say China's nipping at our heels. It's not even close. And yet, consistently, year after year after year after year, guess which country is in the top five in the world of the most depressed place on the planet? America. And we gotta, we gotta reckon with this. And when we, when we look at this version of the American dream, and we say there's constantly never enough... Our, we start to buy in this mindset of scarcity mentality is what some people call it. We get nervous, we get anxious. There's never enough, there's never enough, there's never enough. I've gotta have more. You ask rich people how much more, and they're like, I don't know, I just need more. That's scarcity mindset. It leads to hoarding, which I did a little research. The storage facility industry in America is booming. There are 1.9 billion square feet of storage space in America, that's six square feet for every man, woman, and child in our country. Now, don't send me storage facility emails either. They're fine. <laughs> They're fine. I'm just like trying to, like, where this mindset leads. Like, I gotta have more, I gotta have more, I gotta have more. It leads to a perpetual sense of worry, which in another parable, Jesus says, greed chokes out the gospel. It chokes our life out of our bones. So it's really interesting knowing all that. What comes right after our second wisdom statement? You can look at your Bibles, Luke 12, 22 and 23. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus is telling us there's a better way. Do we have ears to hear? We don't have to buy into that life that leads to death. The other way is we, look, we were rich towards the Lord, that everything that we possess, everything we have, we give over to the Lord. We say, it's yours. And we trust that God has given us more than enough. This leads to the opposite of scarcity mindset. It leads to what I call abundance mindset. It leads to people that aren't ingrates, but people that are filled with gratitude 
People that aren't misers, but people that are known for their generosity. Jesus goes on after he tells us not to worry, right after Luke. He says, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon, all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. It makes me think of my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, I I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. I think he's pretty brilliant. Uh, And C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of, of competing desires and of settling of settling for things that are less than what God has for us. And I think this young man is a classic case. Uh, Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I love this line. We are far too easily pleased. Do we have ears to hear? What, what, is, what is this good life through the kingdom lens that Jesus is, is offering us? Um, I think he tells us in Luke 9, 23 through 25, which is right before he goes on the road trip. I would argue this teaching, which we see in every gospel, is some of the most important teaching Jesus ever gives. I think it's the very foundation and heart of discipleship. And Jesus says this, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole entire world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What is Jesus' version of the good life? Jesus would say we find our lives by giving it away. We find life by giving it away. What does that kind of life look like? Jesus would say it looks like this. It looks like a cross-shaped life that constantly we're diving into opportunities to die to ourselves so we'll experience, as Paul says, the life that is truly life. Augustine, the great African theologian, he had this, uh, this visual image of sin, which I love. I think we need to use our bodies more. And he says that sin causes us to be curved in on ourselves. Like maybe do that sometimes in your prayer life curving in on ourselves. He says, he says we're meant to be giving everything away. That's how we are created. That's what the gospel does for us. The gospel unfurls us. But sin causes us to say, no, I got a grip. I got a hold. It's mine, mine, mine. More, more, more. That's what sin does. The gospel breaks that and opens up our lives to experience the life that is truly life. I want to do something. Um, I want to have a prayer moment here. And some of you are like, I'm a guest. I don't want to do a prayer moment or this is weird. And that's okay. You can check your phone or whatever you feel comfortable doing. But if you're willing, I'd like you to close your eyes and, uh, and put your hands out in front of you. You can put them on your knees or just out in front of you. And I want you to, to close them up in a fist. This is what sin does to us. And I heard somebody once say that the things that we have to steward, we could define them as, as, uh, as time and talents and treasure. 
and there's, there's probably more, but I like those categories. They're all T's too. So, you know, it's like a youth pastor talk. Uh, time, treasure, talents. Think, let's think through each of those. So let's, let's start with our time. So keep your, keep your fist. This is what, what's it like to grip our time to ourselves. It's mine. I don't have enough time. We're going to curl in on ourselves. This is what sin does. And now slowly open your hands. What might it look like to see your time and your calendar and your schedule being used for others? Maybe even in your family. Maybe the people in your neighborhood, people in your school, people in your workplace. What does that look like? To die to ourselves so we bring life to others. And let's pray together over our time. Uh, Jesus' great prayer, uh, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done with our time. Now go ahead and, and put your fists together again. This is our talents. We each are uniquely talented. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're all incredible works of art in this room. That's what scripture says about us. Some of you got unique talents. You're athletic, you're artistic, you're smart, you got a good memory, you're great with people. We're all unique. I would add experience to our talents. Maybe you raised in a home where somebody taught you a skill or there's different experience we have. All that's our talent. What does it look like to just hold that to ourselves? That's mine. I'm gonna use it for my own good and build bigger barns. Now, what does the gospel do? It opens our hands. Let's go ahead and open our hands. What might it look like in these coming weeks to use your talents for the good of others, to die to yourself so that you might experience the life that is truly life? Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done with our talents. And then finally, grip your, grip your hands here. Treasures, woo! Talking about money in church, people. That's get your head sweaty. It's tense. We don't like it. But man, money goes to the heart of how we see the world. Okay, you you want to see what people care about? Look at their checkbook. So what does that look like? This isn't a shame. I don't want your money. I just want you, us as followers to just think about what we do with our treasure. Now slowly open your hands. What does it look like? Some of you know. Some of the people in this room, I know you're so generous. Talk about it more. Talk about what it does to your heart, how it grows big and bold and beautiful. Jesus, this is a personal subject. This is so hard but we follow you. Everything we have, every penny we have is yours. And we pray with our treasures, your kingdom come, your will be done. And all God's people said, maybe that's something that you can do uh, in your prayer life. If you wanna take the next step, I get that all the time. What do we do? You know, do this. Maybe take one a week and just pray over it and do that in your prayer life. And the Holy Spirit will bring to mind for you in those categories of time, talents, treasures. What does it look like? Because we think this is life and Jesus is like, that's stupid. That's stupid. He's like, this is life. This is life. I, uh, my, my parents have a beach house on the, the East Coast where I, I grew up and we go back there a couple times a year. So I grew up at the beach uh, we call it the beach on the East Coast. You guys call it the coast. I had to get used to that. But we, we uh, I think both coasts build sandcastles. Anybody like sandcastle building? Yeah, like 12 of you are still children at heart. That's great. Um, I love it. And uh, Cannon Beach has this, uh, this sandcastle contest. I don't know if you've ever been. I think June 11th is the 58th annual. It started back in 1964. And so they have a master's division, which I think last year 60 uh, master sand sculptors participated in. And this is next level stuff, right? It's incredible. People spend 10, 12, 14 hours on these things. They're masterpieces. Mine are like just the simple plastic bucket on castle kind of style, right? This is like, what in the world is this? But what you notice if you go to one of these things is they're working fast. Why do you think they're working fast? The tide's coming in. The tide's coming in for all of us. 
That's just what Jesus wants. Your life's gonna be required of you. Is what you're doing with your life built to last? Or is it just, are we just building sandcastles with our time and our talent and our treasures? Is it, is it built to last? Or to use another Jesus phrase, or, our, or is our life built on the rock? It will outlast us. It will outlive us. What does that look like? One of my favorite movies uh, growing up was Gladiator with Russell Crowe. Anybody see that movie? I don't know if I can recommend it. I think it's rated R. Don't watch it. But it's a great movie. Um, so at the beginning, he's Maximus. He's his Roman general. And if you remember the scene, he's, they're about to go to battle against the barbarians. He's back and forth on horseback, back and forth. He's like got that Russell Crowe voice. He's trying to get him fired up. He's a general. And he says this line, as a young man, it just penetrated my heart. He said, what you do with your life echoes throughout all eternity. And, and when I heard that as a young man, I'm like, that's true. I don't know exactly how that's true. And I don't think I'm calling you today to go to battle and kill people. That's not what I'm calling you. <laughs> but that's true. What are we doing with our lives? One of the stories that, that, that shaped who I became, and I think part of the reason I'm standing on this stage today was the story of Jim Elliott. I read uh, his story in a book called Through Gates of Splendor, written by his wife, Elizabeth. Jim was an uh, all-American kid, uh, incredible wrestler. He went to Wheaton, graduated in 1945 with, with, with honors, all-American, the whole deal. He could have done anything he wanted with his life, but he felt God wanted him to take the gospel to tribal people in the Amazon who had never heard so he left. He took off at like, you know, age 20 or something like that. 18-day trip, spent uh, months in the Amazon learning the language, learning the culture. They started seeing some of the tribes people come to Christ, and then he heard about this group called the Uccas. And he said, no, they said, nobody goes to them. No one, because they kill everybody that gets close. And he said he felt God calling him to take the gospel to Uccas. So with four other friends, they got a plane, and they began to drop presence to the yuccas. No one had ever had contact with them. And he would see them run out and get the presents, and that continued for months. And they finally decided to land the plane. And they thought they were going to bring a bunch of presents. They'd seen a lot of women and children. They were hopeful. They were prayerful. And that day, they approached them, and they saw the women and children coming. And then to their horror beside them, coming out of the forest, they saw the warriors with the spears. And people who were there and were watching from afar said that Jim went for his pistol, but then he pulled his hand off. Because they had talked about it, they would, they would never do that. But that was his impulse, and I don't blame him. And all five men were killed that day. The story, no internet then, it rocketed around the world and made the cover of Life magazine. Because I think there was this deep meaning of what does it look like to, to live? What does it like to give our lives for something? His wife, uh, Elizabeth, along with some of the other uh, wives and other people, went back a few years later. And incredible story, almost all of the Uccas came to faith in Christ. Isn't that incredible? She found her husband's journals as a young man in college, years later, packed away in a box. And this is a picture, actually, of, of one of the journal. And, he, and, and this is the quote she found. Uh, he said, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The world would call Jim's life a waste. Jesus would call it the good life. Jim Elliott outlived all of us. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thanks for the story. It's, it's unsettling. I'll say that for our church. It's unsettling to me. I couldn't study it this week and not have it mess with me. And I invite, continue to mess with me, God. Continue to mess with us, God. We don't want to be the church that's known for, for holding stuff to ourselves and being curved in on ourselves. We want to be known as a church of generosity, of gratitude, of big-heartedness. We want to be unfurled for your glory and for the sake of the world. 
We invite your Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Don't leave us alone. Shape us into the image of your son. Shape us so that we can live cross-shaped lives for your glory. And we love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,